technology solutions in order for them to work, even if they're in kind of these rapid, fluid context like humanitarian response, they they still require trust and they require trust building. And I think there's often this, especially with cash programs, I should say, there's just this quick, I get it, this is how it should be done. I come from a banking sector or I come from this or I come from the, the tech world and why aren't you guys just doing it like this? Like it should be like this. And it's like, because there's other things that are in the mix here. Like the reason why we're not using a ID card, maybe it's because people don't want to be registered because they're afraid of being persecuted. Like there's a lot more here that we need to be aware of that maybe you're not taking the time to look beyond just the, the tech solution of it. Hi everybody, you're listening to Aid Evolved and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. In this space, we'll be hearing firsthand the journeys and the careers of people who have dedicated their lives to fighting poverty or delivering healthcare. People who are asking the question, can technology help us do this better? And as we learn about their inspiration and fears, their doubts and their triumphs, my hope is that we can piece together a few lessons learned for those of us trying to do the same. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome to our show, Rosa Akbari. Rosa is a humanitarian technologist. I think of her as one of those first responders when there's a disaster or a war or a crisis, flying in with a phone and a laptop to see how she can help. Those of you that have worked in the space of humanitarian response know that it's a pretty small space. And Rosa has worked for some of the key players in it such as Mercy Corps and the International Rescue Committee. Also, just coming clean here, Rosa used to work with me at the social enterprise Dimagi. So we've got a little bit more history together that maybe seeps its way into this episode. As we talk about Rosa's journey into and through this space, we travel from Haiti to Iraq to the Central African Republic. And we talk about certain technologies which are particularly important in the humanitarian context such as digital identities, cash programming, and voucher systems. Just before we hear from her, let me give you a little bit of background context. What do all these words mean? So a common mental image of a first responder is somebody who shows up with blankets and food and other essential supplies to provide urgent support for a community. In more recent years, there's been this realization that providing raw materials, one, might not be well-matched, to the needs of that community. Two, it's hard to predict given how quickly a lot of these disasters unfold. And three, can be highly destabilizing to a local economy and people. So in the modern era, it's much more common to provide cash instead of goods. For example, almost 40% of what the World Food Program does is providing cash assistance, hence cash programming. But sometimes there are concerns that cash in some communities will be misused. So Certain relief programs use vouchers. A voucher is kind of like cash in that you can use it to buy a variety of things, but it's linked to specific vendors. So maybe you can only buy food or livestock, but at least you can buy it from a local supplier. At least you can support the local economy. The last term I'll mention is digital identity. When you get into the space where we're handing out food or cash or vouchers, it becomes extremely important to deliver these goods to the right people. You want to prevent a small number of people from hoarding the goods and ensure that what's available can reach the people that need it the most. In order to manage these large-scale distribution schemes, you need to have some sense of identity. 
who is this relief going to? Is it going to all the families in a community? Is it getting to all the children within those families? And that kind of planning and distribution effort is really hard to do without some concept of identity, some way to register individuals. Anyways, we'll talk about all these concepts more as we get into the episode. Here's my conversation with Rosa Akbari. I understand you're headed to Damascus? Potentially. We're seeing how the uh, the visas, etc. go. But uh, oh. for now, we'll be going back to Beirut and then uh, waiting it out from there. Good luck with that. I think that's definitely a, a pain and a joy. <laughs> I can yeah. empathize um, with you for. What are you, what are you going there for? So I've recently joined, um, it's a roster essentially, it's called CashCap, which is short for cash capacity. It's a lot of acronyms, sorry. It's hosted by NORCAP, which is Norwegian capacity at the Norwegian Refugee Council. And it's basically a pool of experts, as they're called, um, that are deployed to support uh, different cash responses. And so there is a burgeoning cash response in Damascus now, and they need some support. That makes sense. Oh, man. Well, I hope they treat you okay and that you stay safe while you're there. Hopefully, yeah. But clearly you're no stranger to ending up in all these places around the world that some of us only read about. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about those stories that you have Rosa, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Where were you born? What would you say you are if you identify as anything? (laughs) That kind of stuff? Sure. So I was born in South Carolina to, uh, I was first generation Iranian. Both my parents are from Iran. And I was born and raised there. I'd be curious to hear how it is that your parents came to the United States. What brought them? So my mom actually came when she was 17 or 18 years old. Hmm. She came in 1973. Both my parents were, uh, so there's a few different groupings of Iranians that came in the 70s and, and 80s. My parents were coming on student exchange. There were still good relations with Iran and the United States at that time. Those were the days. And yeah, and so she came uh to study engineering. She didn't know English or anything, but oh, nice. but engineering, uh, both my parents are engineers by trade. Good for her. I can't imagine being a woman from Iran coming to the United States to study engineering. There's, <laughs> there's some, we're going to get her on the show next. <laughs> yeah, really. She's, she's actually the one to, to really be speaking with. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think the story in many countries that it's so like the 99.9 percentile, you know, it's so hard to get into to school and uh, Hmm. so she she also as a woman um realized that maybe it wouldn't get the best shot in Iran to do the things that she wanted to do so Hmm. she begged her mom she was the first from her family to to leave and she just left and she was placed a host family in Kansas first and then um wild ultimately went to Oklahoma University and did civil engineering and then uh yeah, and then she actually, I guess, somehow ended up in Texas after that, brought some of her other family members over. And my father was uh, a new Iranian student that had come a few days or a few years after her. Oh, boy. And somebody said, oh, <laughs> can you show this guy around? And that was how they, so they actually met in the States. And the rest is history. <laughs> and the rest is history, yeah. But, um, Fascinating. How has that background influenced your work, would you say, like as an immigrant in the United States? I know I noticed the line of work that you've taken since then has 
they don't touch on the Middle East in a variety of ways. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the relationship there? To be honest, I didn't really start to think about it till more recently. Because um, hmm. I've just always been following a curiosity I've had and just kind of wanting to learn more and be, you know, in places where I can really observe and learn. But now when I look back, and especially <laughs> as my family is very kind to remind me, they're like, we, we tried to leave that region. Why do you keep wanting to go back? Oh, um, I hear but, you. Yeah, I think the the first thing uh, is, I mean, again, they were part of this generation that they came and, and everything kind of changed and they couldn't go back and uh, even yeah. getting degree or sorry, jobs in, in engineering, the hostage situation had happened. So there was a bit of discrimination against people getting jobs. So you have then this yeah. class of people who are really educated in one thing and then having to be entrepreneurial and start their own businesses, et cetera, which is what my parents had to do. And so from an early age, and, and I still really hold it close, is there's opportunity everywhere. Um, hmm. And that there's uh, sometimes the best opportunities are those that people don't think are actually um, places <laughs> to be looking and, and things to be doing, um, which I think for me has, I'm not a fearless person, I can't say that, but I, I definitely- That's not the impression uh, you give me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I definitely perhaps see situations in a way that doesn't cause me fear but I'm cautious as a result of just knowing that anything can happen anything can change but uh but yeah that's one and then um yeah and then more as I've spent I, I remember still the first time that I I went to the Middle East for for work was with the IRC and I'd gone to Turkey first southern Turkey and then Dohuk in Iraq right as hmm. um, Mosul was was falling Whew. And you never had the chance to go back for personal reasons uh, to see extended family or anything? Iran, once I went uh, actually in the summer of 2001, which was good timing. Summer of 2001. Glad you got in there. Yeah. And my mom hadn't gone back for 20 years. She'd gone to uh, the last time she'd gone back, the Iran-Iraq war had started and she was basically mm. stuck for two years. And so oh man, her story That's for crazy. me was that I would constantly ask, you know, do they have... Uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch in Iran. Like, oh my God, I need to take my child to Iran. <laughs> she has to. So, um, so yeah, I remember going. I do love Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And, yeah, it was definitely. Uh, but it, it, it's still. Okay. I mean, it. It. I remember the feeling um, of just wow. This is a. This is a, such a familiar world, but it's a different world. Um, and yeah. the only. The next time I had that feeling was the first time I landed in Delhi airport. It was just like, <laughs> whoa, this is, you know, this seems somewhat familiar, but wow, this is just a completely different uh, life and pace and everything is different. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, so when I've, I returned back to the Middle East, I think that the, the things that I remember are, oh, they have tea, especially I was in the Kurdish areas and things. And I was like, oh, they, they drink tea like like we do. And they, they, you know, so it was all this familiarity and things. That I really, I felt at home in, a, in an odd way. Oh, nice. and so I think that that's, that's where I've stuck in the Middle East despite. Yeah, my... yeah, no, that's awesome. We could do an entire episode just on the immigrant experience. <laughs> yeah. And then, Rosa, you mentioned going to the Naval Postgraduate School and pursuing what to me, it looks on paper like a very unconventional kind of <laughs> studies. You know, most like you, you go to school, people study math or biology or something. And, and what did you study there? So it was labeled um, stabilization and security studies. Um, what is that? Which is, to me, as a 
political science student that come from McGill is basically political science and IR or international relations with um, uh, geared essentially for the military officer. Um, there were oh. civilians like myself. I was not enlisted or anything, um, but it is kind of the the geopolitics and understanding um, kind of with that bent of how will this impact my next deployment, essentially. Wow. While I was with NPS, I went to uh, Haiti after the earthquake, um, a few days after the earthquake, and I I was part of a civil military kind of small unit that we were actually sent there to set up hard comms network. Fascinating. Bye. The equipment was all NPS-owned equipment, so like VSATs and and BGANs and all of this stuff. So the the overarching premise... VSATs are... Our satellite networks and BGANs are... Like small little uh, Wi-Fi units. And you'll see that I am not myself an engineer, so <laughs> I, that's what it was to me. It was basically a, B, a Wi-Fi unit that could be used anywhere and it was super expensive um, <laughs> service fees. But uh, anyway, so we, we had been sent with all of this equipment with the intent of... Um, setting up Wi-Fi hotspots, a lot of what NetHope um, and I Mm. think uh, other organizations do, Um, but then also in some ways by providing that infrastructure, would you also be allowing some of that soft networking to be happening across different people who would all be using the the Wi-Fi hotspots? Um, But while I was there, that was kind of the first time that SMS, at least in my memory, that, that SMS was seen as such a powerful tool for either reporting like I'm under the rubble or um, kind of uh, people coordinating through Twitter and all all this stuff. Um, But while I was there, I also had this like moment of I thought that I would be like scared in this environment. I thought that I would be confused. But for whatever reasons, I am just kind of seeing all of these networks emerge and um, I I, ha- I have an odd um, comfort, I guess, or familiarity. I'm, I'm comfortable in this environment more than I thought. Okay, let me like remember huh. that. So clearly, you you had that that formative experience first with the ideas in Haiti, and then you spent some great years at Damagi. <laughs> I'll assume, uh, you know, learning a lot more on the technical sides. It being a technology focused social enterprise. And then since then, you've spent many years working in the technology for humanitarian response space at IRC and at Mercy Corps. Can you talk a bit about some of your experiences there? Like, is there a particular deployment or experience or effort that you worked on that you'd like to share with our audience? Sure. Well, so when I joined IRC, I was embedded within their economic recovery and development unit. And so I was primarily working on um, their economic programs, which would span from uh, emergency response and cash programming through to village um, savings groups and loan associations, probably getting that acronym wrong, VSLAs. Um, But uh, so yeah, so I I kind of had this inherent focus after coming from Dubagi and was working more on the health and and ag space to working uh, in in this new space. and I really gravitated towards cash programming. Uh, and I think fast forwarding then, um, I remember when the grant was being written, I was still at IRC, but then once I got to Mercy Corps, um, there was this thing called the Cash Consortium of Iraq. And huh. it 
it's a it's a consortium, uh, obviously, of uh, five NGOs um, that all banded together to harmonize their programming, harmonize uh, their data collection methods and indicators, et cetera, et cetera, um, in order to be more effective, uh, be more flexible, um, and essentially scale uh, the their cash response uh, more readily. Um, mm. This was a new model at the time, or a burgeoning model at the time, because typically one would be looking at the UN um, to do these like much larger, bigger uh, responses. And so, Makes for sense. me, just, the, just for the benefit of our yeah. of our audience, when you talk about cash programming, that's the sure. provision of humanitarian assistance through cash. Is that right? Correct. It's uh, either through cash or, so we say cash-based, uh, which would be a voucher. Um, but it is this, uh, very simply put, it's instead of giving a piece of food or a non-food item, like a blanket or something, you instead give people uh, cash so that they can essentially choose what they want to yeah. buy. With and and that. I can see why you're, you were drawn to it, you know, because like it's, it's a certain intrinsic appeal to it you know like you give, give people choice you give them cash I, I remember even talking to my sister about give directly and their model of just you know let's give people cash and then they can decide right. for themselves whether to buy food or a television or whatever else um, yeah. and so i can i can see what drew you in but i'm guessing it's not as simple as i've painted that picture to be <laughs> well kind of i mean I, even <laughs> I the first time I mean, when I went from uh, Turkey and Iraq and things and this I remember coming back I was still at IRC at the time I came back and I was talking to my my boss at the time and said so I, I really don't mean to be rude but I don't think cash programming is that complicated is it am I missing something <laughs> and she was like no it's pretty straightforward because operationally <laughs> I mean yes there are complexities now but like operationally it it's easy for somebody from the outside to kind of at a high level, just understand the mechanics of how it works. Now, the intricacies of what a good or bad design are, good partnerships, that's its own thing. But I think mm. that's for, for any type of um, any type of response. So, so yeah, but with the cash programming, things, as, as our sector tends to do, they tend to overcomplicate things. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I went to Iraq, I was coming... Uh, at the the request of the director of the consortium at the time. And I started to uncover kind of what the proposals that were being given to stand up a, what I would call a societal platform that would mirror something like Adhar or something in India. Like it was mm -hmm. essentially a uh, digital ID scheme and uh, um, interoperability across all payment providers. And there's just this whole massive thing that- Oh wow, for very, all of Iraq. Very, for all of Iraq that fit very neatly on a single PDF, uh, like single page PDF. And I was like, oh what? boy. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that sounds ambitious. Very, very ambitious. <laughs> and the timeline to do it was like eight months. What? Inherently, what, what was being proposed relied on some form of ID issuance um, hmm. that is, uh, to me, a government function. Um, and yeah, it just kind of harkened back to the good, bad, otherwise of other national ID schemes that I, I was familiar with. And that was where I started to scratch my head. This is not something that this agency actually can do. This one in particular mm -hmm. does not have the mandate to 
give people digital IDs or national IDs. Where is the hmm. government piece in this, or where is and also and what, what would what would you say are the the reasons? I could guess why, but what would you say are the reasons that this is a function the government must own and not something that an agency should assume that they can bequeath on a country? Yeah, well, it's ultimately the the ID itself is something that needs to be recognized by institutions and formal institutions in both a country as well as abroad. Um, but, you know, the only agency that in my opinion, um, that really has a mandate to provide people a legitimate ID is the UNHCR, which is the, the uh, Commission for Refugees, because they legally can give people refugee status. So unless you can True. actually back up the status that you're providing to somebody in the form then of some form of credential, like a, a ID of some kind, then you're not actually giving a, a, a foundational ID. You're just giving something that one says is a functional ID. Like it's just like a mm. library card or a, you know whatever else. These are technically forms of ID, but it doesn't, if I take my library card to try and enter a new country, they're gonna say, get out of here. Like the <laughs> only thing that's recognized is my passport. Um, mm. And not everybody can issue a passport, right? And so I think that there is kind of this, um, there's been a lot of conflation, I guess, of uh, do we, and startups and, you know, there's a lot of people in the space that some really get it and some don't, I think. Yeah, um, I think, I think you make an important distinction there between a, uh, a national ID, like a true, uh, like a true government identifier versus some of these functional identifiers, you know, like we need library cards <laughs> for a variety of library related reasons, and we can still work with those things in, in the humanitarian space. But once you get to the point where everything about someone's identity, their their birth registration, their ability to attend school, their ability to access government services is related to an ID, then it becomes a lot more political, a lot more longstanding and requires a lot more engagement with the government to get there. Yeah. The teams that I've seen in uh, Gaza or in Colombia um, or even Iraq, really, um, that have embraced this idea of this first starts with data standards and then we overlay the tech on top of that. And when we do that, we yes, we can have a shared ID that's good between us. But then if we have enough people using this ID in a singular way, we can have a little bit more sway then to go to the mobile operator and say, listen, mm. We recognize this isn't a formal ID, but would you still use this? You know, would would you look at our verification processes that we've done with this individual and accept that as, you know, a way to um, now accept, you know, the the, the I, I call it a fake ID, but essentially uh, <laughs> the 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 NGO ID that we have. Like, can this also <laughs> count the same as a passport? And in some countries, yes. it can. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's a matter of negotiation. But if seven different NGOs are the seven different IDs and try to have that conversation, it won't work. For sure. Rosa, in your in your work in this space, are there any recurring frustrations that you have with the system and how they work or or, or even uh, or on the flip side of it, you know, major successes that you're proud of that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think. Well, I'll start with the frustration. Um, <laughs> Those are always more fun. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that there's no easy solutions. And I think that sol solutions in order for technology solutions in order for them to work, even if they're in kind of these 
rapid, fluid context like humanitarian response, they they still require trust and they require trust building. And it requires people like myself who are who are not, you know, career humanitarians. Uh, I hmm. am a uh, I reluctantly call myself a technologist, I guess, but you know, <laughs> I, I come more from kind of a tech world I, in some way um, hmm. that I need to show up and watch and listen before I say anything and before I propose anything. And I think there's often this, especially with cash programs, I should say, there's just this quick, I get it, you know, this is how it should be done. I come from a banking sector or I come from this or I come from the, you know, the the tech world. And why aren't you guys just doing it like this? Like it should be like this. And it's like, because there's other, you know, things that are in the mix here. Like the reason why yeah. we're not using a ID card, maybe it's because people don't want to be registered because they're afraid of being persecuted. Like there's a lot more here that yeah. we need to be aware of that maybe you're not taking the time to look beyond just the, the tech solution of it. Um, yeah. And I think that with cash programming that for whatever reasons, it, it's a magnet for that. And so it becomes a bit of a frustration, but I think there's more people in the the world now that that are seeing the, that technology decisions last and it's better to measure twice and cut once. Like it's, it's better mm. to take your time and actually put infrastructures and make decisions that if they do last, it will be okay. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Rosanna, I really like what you're calling out there. I think in, in a lot of these digital development conversations, we talk about data, we talk about information and infrastructure but when it gets comes to something as as personal as an as identity, when it comes to something as 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 real as humans that are receiving services um, and sharing their private information in order to get that service, there's this element of trust, and that's not a technology thing. That's something where you need to sit down and and do the hard labor of actually making those connections and and earning that trust. Nobody gets trust for free, um, and if we're asking for something, then we need to deserve it. Yeah, and that's not that's not a technology thing. But yeah, success. So in um, in Central African Republic, um, we had a team that uh, was about to start a large um, voucher program that mm. uh, means that uh, typically was uh, for emergency food security. But typically, that means you're you're giving out vouchers to people that um, kind of like a food how food cards or food stamps work, um, EBT cards in the States, uh, that you're, you're given a voucher that can only be used for certain goods at certain vendors or merchants or whatever. Mm. Um, and it's a lot of paper. It's a lot of printing. You're doing that every month and then you have to get the vouchers back and count them and all the reconciliation and then go pay the vendors back, reimburse them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So there's a important piece for technology there because it's just a, a continuous process. So this, the Central African Republic team was doing this voucher program for the first time. And the director of programs there was uh, very, um, uh, I think, ambitious and trusting and said, I, we don't have time to do it digitally. Like we don't have time to even go through a rounded paper. Like we just, I want to push them to let's just start with digital. And of course, oh, wow. my first my first reaction, I was like, oh, my gosh, no, like this is we have to do a, a paper once because then we'll we'll figure out what's like good or bad. And then we'll add the digital. But he was adamant. And I said, OK, as long as like you understand my caveat that starting with digital, you just need to be extra aware of what is going wrong programmatically versus what's going wrong from the like technology side. He said, OK, that okay. makes sense. 
<laughs> and so so he did all the role playing with the teams because they were obviously hesitant and were like, what are you talking about? You know, you had the cardboard <laughs> cutouts of the phones. And nice. so he set everything up. And the, the sticking point, which is often one in, in programs, um, it was around the essentially we give somebody a card and they use it kind of like an ATM card. They tap it. They have to enter a pin number and then they can get their voucher, redeem their voucher credit. The PIN mm -hmm. number became an issue because of just literacy rates and and things. Oh, no. And so the, the staff said that's not going to be a good thing. And so mm. uh, we said, well, the platform can support, you know, patterns, uh, like how you unlock a phone. It can support colors. Um, the idea is to like unlock these digital vouchers. They need to be able to provide uh, like a PIN or a pattern or some password. Exactly. To unlock it. Just to just to verify that yes, I I am the person that knows the secret code, and therefore this is my card essentially. Gotcha. Um, and so, uh, so I thought colors fine. Like pick a few colors, and then you're off uh, off to the races. And he was like, well you know, the vocabulary for color is not the same that we have. Like, they don't have as vast of a vocabulary in the local language for different colors. And I was just like, whoa, oh, it's so fascinating. Wow. And yeah, okay. I had no idea. And he was like, brown won't be brown and blue. Like, and it just goes back to this whole notion of like language. And I don't know. So I was going down <laughs> yeah, that I, rabbit I wonder hole. if they, is, is the brown they see different than the brown I see because they have a different word for it? <laughs> exactly. Right. So we went, so essentially like, we had our whole meta discussion on one side and then we said, okay, but what, what, and he, and I said, well, we can use pictures. Uh, uh, what about like animals or something? And he said, okay, well, let me, let me go back to the group and they can do focus groups with, with people, you know, in the communities and see, yeah. and they came back and they landed on, and I, I, I can send you the, the photo of it, um, of what it ended up being, but they landed on animals. Like I said, we, nice. they said, we have, we have a story telling culture and it's easier for us to remember like the cat chased the the rabbit down the hill to the elephant or something you know so yeah, the yeah. pin number is just a bunch of different animals that oh, one that's picks. so clever that's brilliant. and it was yeah and it was just one of these things that i was like wow this is like i feel like a culmination of all my years of working and learning <laughs> all of these things making sure to have a service provider that has a platform that's like super easy you know that we can say well well yeah we can do colors we can do this and that not being an issue that not being like a coding thing that we can just quickly swap things in and out that we could have you know the ability to go show people and say do you like this one okay no do you like this one okay um nice. and it yeah and it was this thing that i don't even know if a lot of people at mercy Corps even knew what was happening but for the little <laughs> group of us that that we were doing it it was like this is it just i was just like this is this is why i do the, this is why i'm in this role and why i love doing this type of work is that this is a collaborative experience and if yeah. it's if everybody kind of pitches their uh, at the right place you can come out with solutions that work and people trust in places that people are like you'll never be able to do that um <laughs> and so that was my very long-winded uh no, favorite experience that's awesome that's a great example what i and and what i love about it is that is that there's no class or course or book or thing that you could have read that would have told you that this was going to be the right answer. Like you needed to go in with a clear mind and you know not bring any assumptions with you. And you needed to talk to people and you need to figure out what would work in practice. And I would wager that there's not many people in the history of the earth that have done that much work already on 
password systems for humanitarian voucher approaches in you know central africa <laughs> that'll that'll yeah. work in this community you know like there's only so much prior sure, research yeah. um that could have made something something this this new <laughs> work yeah um, so it's awesome to see that that story coming together all right, Rosa, we've only got a couple more minutes left. I was hoping to just run through our rapid fire questions. Uh, first question for you, Rosa, is if you have any advice for young professionals, people who are looking to start out their career and thinking maybe that they're going to work in technology for development, um, from your experience, any any advice that you'd like to share with them? Just to get out there. You know, I know it's easier said than done, um, but... Particularly now. Yeah, particularly now, for sure. Um but you know, when when the world opens again, um, especially if you don't come from a technology background or software engineering or, or any of this, um, just going and seeing and really understanding how how normal people are using technology in the places that you're interested in, or maybe in the types of programs or sectors or whatever you're interested in, um, is most important. Like I my nice. my line was essentially I wanted to. I was fascinated by the way that uh, pastoralists used Nokia phones. So I was like, I just want to watch pastoralists use Nokia <laughs> phones. And that's kind of where everything began. So That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> Rosa, do you have any requests for donors or policymakers who might be listening to this podcast? Yeah, I think for at least for the humanitarian donors, you know, better coordinated responses also require better coordination mm. among donors. Um, huh. And, True. you know, there's obviously a lot that implementers and, and kind of the, the recipients of, of donor funds can do to coordinate themselves up front. Um, but I think that there's a lot from the top down. Um, like from my <laughs> even interoperability example, I think that was something that I, I told the donors this entire conversation would be different if you all mandated in your donor or your funding request to use XYZ standards or to at least mm. ask to show that these stand that you are somehow showing some sense regarding data standards. So yeah. it, there is that top down element that's important. That's a really good point. Can you highlight a common implementation mistake that you see in other projects or your projects? Yeah, it's forgetting that trust is actually the 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 one of, if not the most important part of a successful project. We have a, a tendency to focus on product a lot, um, yeah. but the product design is, is kind of the easier and somewhat funner part. The, <laughs> the hard part is really understanding all of the, the stakeholders involved and, and what will it take to convince all the stakeholders, um, not just mm. the person who's who's paying the, the donor fund to really <laughs> um, trust that what you're giving them is going to work and it's going to last. That makes sense. Would you like to offer a shout out to another mover or shaker in this field? I Well, I just recently got his, his new book and I think he's quite a hilarious guy, but there's a fellow named David Birch who works for an organization called Consult Hyperion, um, hmm. who their Consult Hyperion is kind of a behind the scenes, let's say, consultancy group that they helped create the Oyster card, um, tap card and and ah. for the London Metro. They're actually doing the TTC, uh, the Toronto Transit, I think, as well. Um, they've they helped start M-Pesa. Anyway, they're they're just huh. they've been doing digital cash work, let's say, uh, um, and and tapless kind of um, interesting stuff for a long, long time. And so David Birch is, is just a really funny, 
kind of um, mind in that space and, and leader kind of in the digital ID and, and what's becoming the digital currency uh, space that, that I really That sounds great. He must be doing well now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, on, do you have any recommended reading, a book, an article, a blog or a podcast, either related to work or just from personal interest? So my podcasts are usually for comedy, so I will skip over some of those. But um, give us one, just one. Sh- oh boy! Uh, well, this is going to be really showing my cards. Um, <laughs> there's a new one called "That's Messed Up," and it's a podcast about Law and Order SVU. Um, huh. That they they awesome. they go through an episode and then they go through the crime behind it, and it's these two comedians, and it's just quite funny. But yeah, the, there's quickly, I guess there's two. Um, just to even give it a bit of light, there were two um, books and, and blogs. Um, the blog is, there's a new blog, I guess. It's called uh, Rest of the World. Um, and hmm. the, the article that I was tipped off to it was related to um, this startup in Haiti, uh, a, a financial technology startup in Haiti, and the whole concept of Um, It's very hard as a startup technology company in the financial space to grow because of all of the the licensing and accreditation on how expensive it is. Um, Mm. It's hard to compete with like the MasterCards or whoever else. Um, But yeah, the rest of the world is just like, it's like a tech, I don't know, it's like a blog for people that are probably listening to this podcast. Um, (laughs) uh, And, um, and the book, it's still my favorite book, is uh, In the Light of, of What We Know. Um, it's huh. it, it's kind of indescribable. It's a fiction book um, that uh, it's nonlinear, and the whole time you're kind of figuring out what the plot of the story is, but it begins with <laughs> a fellow who shows up at his friend's doorstep after 20 years um and you're just and it goes through afghanistan and pakistan and bangladesh and kind of has these historical elements and it's uh yeah it's a bit of a wild ride fascinating i'll have to pick it up sounds like a great read thank you so much rosa i really appreciate your time on the podcast if you'd like to learn more about rosa and her work you can download our show notes at aevolved.com and feel free to reach out on twitter at aevolved or via email at podcast at 8evolved.com. Stay safe. We'll see you next time.